other life forms in those places. And for sure those sentient beings are just like us and wanting happiness and not suffering. So when you look into the nighttime sky and see all the stars, let your heart expand and go out to all of them. With a mind that understands them, and understands something incredibly important about each and every living being, no matter who they are, what life form they are. And that's that in their heart of being, they're just doing their best to have happiness and protect themselves from suffering. And when you can look into everybody's heart and see that, then there's a feeling of affinity, connection that arises with each living being. And together with that feeling of affinity, there's an attitude of kindness, compassion, wishing them well in the same way that we wish ourselves well. So based on that, then let's generate the great compassion that not only wishes others well and freedom from suffering, but is willing to engage in the process of bringing that about. And so in that way, let's generate the great resolve and the bodhicitta motivation become fully awakened for the benefit of all those beings. And let's let that be our heartfelt anchor and direction in life. That whatever else happens, we know that that motivation is something that's most wonderful and something that we always want to support and act in accordance with as much as we can. So let's make that our motivation for listening to the Dharma this evening. So we started um, one of the shorter Lamrim texts called Gongchen Lamrim, the Great Meditation on the Stages of the Awakening. 
and uh, we're on this section now about how to organize and set up a meditation session. So we covered already the posture, you know, sitting cross-legged, or if you can't do that on a bench, if you can't do that on a chair, and then the hands, the right on the left, the thumbs touching, this is in the lap, the back straight, the head level, the eyes a wee bit open, but not looking at anything in particular, just kind of down here, letting some light in so that we don't get uh, tired or groggy. Yeah. And uh, so preparing the body by sitting in the correct position, and then preparing the mind, doing uh, some breathing meditation, cultivating, uh, yeah, breathing meditation, and then cultivating our motivation, uh, our bodhicitta motivation. And then um, we do these practices of purification and creating merit. And so that's what we've been going through now. We started on the seven limb, seven limb prayer last week. We, didn't, we only got through two of the limbs, two of the branches. So the, the seven limb prayer, there's a short one. Many of you may be quite familiar with it already. Um, and then there's a longer one that's in the King of Prayers in the Red Prayer Book. Okay, so I'll ex- you know refer to the one in the Red Prayer Book. But you know when you say the shorter one, just a few words, the idea is to think in the same way. Okay, and uh, it's really a very powerful thing. We you know we do this the seven branch. Um, recitation in almost all of our meditation sessions. It comes in one form or another. And so sometimes we just kind of go, oh, oh, um, yes, and when I bow with my body, speech, and mind, and I make offerings, and I confess, you know, kind of like, oh, this again, old hat. Um, But actually, it's quite a profound practice. And if we really uh, stop and contemplate each of these seven. It, you know, each one of them works in a particular way to transform our mind. Yeah. So the first one that we talked about last week was um, prostration, bowing. Yeah. So for us, uh, that may seem a little bit strange. <laughs> yeah, it may seem strange to bow. I know when I um, was trekking in Nepal before I became a Buddhist, I was, we went to one Buddhist monastery, and I don't know why, I was with three other people, but they took me into the abbot's room, and I promptly ignored him and looked at all the beautiful artwork on the walls. And as I was looking at the beautiful artwork, ignoring the abbot, um, a monk came in and made three prostrations to the abbot. And I was like, you know, you're bowing to a human being? Because yeah. in the religion I grew up with, never do that, you know. And in America in general, you know, what do we bow to? Yeah. Our credit card. 
Yeah, we, you know, we bow to our credit card, we take refuge in our credit card. <laughs> yeah. So this process of, you know, deliberately looking for others' good qualities and developing an attitude of respect for them, that's not anything any red-blooded American was taught to do. Yeah. If anything, we were taught to look at people with good qualities and pick faults at them. Yeah. Or raise them very high up and then bash them down and, and watch them fall. Yeah, isn't that what we do with movie stars? Yeah, basketball players, football players. Yeah, I mean, we love doing this as Americans. Politicians, yeah, bankers, we build them up and then we just love tearing them down. So, the, you know, the attitude that we're creating when we're doing prostrations is very different because we're really trying to see others' good qualities knowing that it opens up the path for us to generate those same good qualities. Yeah. And to, to do this without a sense of having to compete with somebody who has good qualities. Yeah. Usually we try and compete, don't we? Yeah. Find some way in which I'm better than the person who has good qualities. Yeah. They may have a lot of good qualities, but I do one thing better, and that's what I focus on. Because we compete, we're jealous. Okay, so really, you know, doing this thing of, of prostrations, training ourselves to notice others' good qualities is a wonderful practice for, you know, developing more humility, yeah, which don't you think we could use some of? If not individually, then certainly as a country, you know, it might help us to develop some humility. Yeah? And, uh, you know, when we see others' good qualities, also our mind naturally feels happy. Whereas when we just focus on tearing other people down, then we don't feel very happy at all. And then the second limb was um, offering. And so this is making offerings to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And as I explained last week, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha don't need those things. Yeah, two pears and two bananas. Wow. Practice the path for three countless gradients, and you get seven bowls of water, two pears, and two bananas. Yeah? Um, so clearly, if you know, you were a Buddha and grasping onto these things, um, you would probably complain a little bit. <laughs> but from the side of the Buddha, you know, the Buddha doesn't need this, but we need to learn how to be generous. Okay, so we make offerings so that we can cultivate delight in giving, and a heart that feels good when we can give, instead of a heart that is worried when we give, because if we give, then we won't have it. Okay? 
but really to develop that free kind of heart. So we talked about the actual offerings like these, uh, and then the unsurpassable offerings. So those are the ones that we visualize. And uh, we can, you know, you take anything that you think is beautiful and visualize it even better than it is and offer it to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in multiple copies of it. Then the third um, of the seven limbs is confession. So I'll read you the verse. Uh, looking at verse. Every harmful action I have done with my body, speech, and mind, overwhelmed by attachment, anger, and confusion. All these I openly lay bare before you. So uh, tomorrow night, no, Sunday night, when we do the posada, the uh, bi-monthly, the twice a month, or fortnightly, I should say, uh, confession and restoration of precepts that the Sangha does, then you're invited to come into the hall and chant this verse with us. So, uh, confession, actually, we say confession, the Tibetan word actually means to split open. Okay? So, so often when we do things that we don't feel so good about doing, we cover them up, don't we? We conceal them. We rationalize them, justify them, deny them. Yeah, we somehow hide them because we we even hide them from ourselves sometimes, not wanting to admit our own negative qualities or negative actions to ourselves, let alone to other people. And that consumes a lot of our energy. Yeah, psychologically covering up our faults you know, rationalizing, justifying, suppressing, repressing, all these kinds of things. It takes a lot of energy that could be used in a more productive way. Yeah. So when we crack them open, when we open these things up and reveal them, then we're also freeing that energy. And so confession is that process of opening it up and revealing, learning to be transparent and learning not to be ashamed. Okay, repeat, learning not, you hear the word not, <laughs> to be ashamed. Because one of the things we often do when we make a mistake and why we cover it up is we feel ashamed. And that's why we don't want anybody to know and we don't want to even acknowledge it ourselves. And, you know, that's not so healthy psychologically or spiritually. When we can reveal it without feeling ashamed, then it doesn't have the same power over us, does it? Because we aren't trying to protect our reputation. We aren't trying to make ourselves look better than we are. We're just okay with being transparent, knowing that we are not our actions. So we can admit, you know, inappropriate or detrimental actions. 
purify them, and then get on with things. That these deeds we did are not cast in concrete, that we have to carry around with us, you know, and be ashamed of our whole life and hide from other people. But we can reveal them. And sometimes when we do that, we can even laugh at them. Yeah. Because some of the things we do are pretty stupid. Yeah? When you think of negative actions you did as a teenager, yeah? Do, do some of them seem rather hilarious now? What you did? You look very serious. <laughs> yeah. When I think of things I did as a teenager, you know, nasty things to put somebody else down or to create a clique and put myself up, you know. And I was horrible. Oh my goodness. In my freshman year of high school, I just I was reading Anne Rand. So already you know it's going south. So I was reading Anne Anne Rand. I thought Anne Rand was great because I was part of the people who were doing well, you know. So I got very very arrogant, and I decided that my geography teacher was the incarnation of every lazy, ignorant bum who was leeching off of society. So this poor man, I mean, I was terrible to him. I went into the counselor's office, I criticized him, I refused to go to his class anymore. Refused, because I was too good to go to his class. So I you know, spent the rest of the term in the library doing my own research, took the exams, passed the class. Every time I saw him, face, I was awful, awful, yeah. And I thought that I was so great, you know. And the whole time, I mean, when I look back on it now, I just, you know, spent that whole year making a fool of myself and creating so much destructive karma, making this poor geography teacher totally miserable, yeah, and thought that, oh, you look very disappointed in me. <laughs> Did I shatter your image? <laughs> So, okay. So, 
you know, if we can look back on some of our negativities and laugh at them, I think that's very helpful. If we can look back on some of the things that we did with understanding, yeah, like a big brother or a big sister would look on a little brother or a little sister, you know, because when we look at the things, you know, that person who did all those ridiculous, stupid things, harmful things, inconsiderate things, mean things, cruel things, yeah, we, we're not that same person now. Yeah, we've grown up a little bit. But we can understand that person because we once were that them. Yeah. So if we can look back on the person we used to be with some compassion because we understand the very mixed up way they were thinking, and how they did that action thinking that it would bring them happiness, but instead, you know, it it brought suffering, then we can bring some forgiveness uh, to ourselves. And I think that's quite important, you know, so that we don't carry around our mistakes with us our whole life, you know, like concrete blocks. But like cinder blocks, yeah, carrying around cinder blocks. Yeah. So to be able to look at those things, have some understanding, forgive ourselves. Okay, so all of that is involved in the practice of, of confession. Okay, so it's the confession is usually expressed in terms of the, the four opponent powers. So the first one is regret, you know. We we can look at what we did, whether we did it when we were 15 or did it 15 minutes ago, and, you know, and have regret for it. Like, gee, I'm sorry I did that. That doesn't mean guilt. Guilt and regret are very different. Guilt is like, I'm the most terrible one, I'm the most horrible one, look at what I did, nobody will ever forgive me, this is dreadful, how could I have done this, I'm the worst one in the world. Yeah, guilt is all about me. Regret is, I did something that doesn't work. You know, that was mean to other people, that was stupid on my part, and I regret doing it. Okay? So regret just can look at something in a balanced way and admit it. And, you know, it, regret doesn't have all the elaboration and the drama of guilt. Okay? Guilt is, you know, you know how we are. You know, and so regret just, okay, I did this. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, regret. Yeah. Then we make a determination not to do the action again. I did this stupid, ridiculous thing that was very mean. And I'm going to be really careful and not do it again. 
And if it's something that you don't think you can really say you'll ever do it again, then say, okay, for the next three days I won't do it. Make some time period that you can succeed at. And then when you fulfill that time period, you know, extend it by a couple of days. Okay. Then the third one is, um, I call it restoring the relationship. Yeah, that's not the literal translation. But what it means is when we have done harmful actions, we did them with motivations, intentions, that were really kind of rotten. And we need to restore the relationship in our mind with whoever it was we harmed by overcoming our rotten motivation. So in terms, if, if we harmed our spiritual mentors or the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, then the way to transform and change our negative attitude is by taking refuge. If we harmed ordinary self, sentient beings, the way to, to transform our mind is by generating bodhicitta, love and compassion and the intention to benefit. If the other person is also still alive, if they want to talk to us, then we can go and apologize. But the face-to-face -face apology isn't necessary. What's most important is that in our heart, our intention has changed, and we've had regret and a determination not to do it again. And then the fourth opponent power is some kind of remedial behavior. So it might be doing the prostrations to the 35 Buddhas, chanting mantra, meditating on the long rim, making offerings, bowing, uh, volunteering at a, you know, a community charity, doing some kind of virtuous action is the remedial action. Okay? So since we um, create negativity on a daily basis, I don't know about you, but I do, then it's very good to do some kind of confession purification practice on a daily basis also. Okay. Then the, um, so that's the third. Yeah. Then the fourth limb is rejoicing. So it's very interesting how, how these things go in pairs, you know. Prostration and offering are both seeing good qualities and showing respect. Confession is, boy, I've, I've blown it and I need to purify. And rejoicing is, and I've also done virtuous actions that I'm very pleased about. Okay, so together with you know, right after we confess, then we also rejoice. Yeah. So the rejoicing is in our own and others' virtue. So when we've done something well, yeah, without pride, but we can still pat ourselves on the back. Yeah. Somebody was really in my face at work today. I was tempted to lose my, you know, my temper and let them have it. But I restrain myself. Good. 
Yeah, I rejoice, I restrain myself. I'm still angry now? Okay, I need to do some meditation on fortitude and loving kindness so I can get rid of my anger. But I rejoice, at least, that I didn't dump my anger all over this other person because, you know, that's my usual habit. Okay, you getting what I'm saying? Yeah? Or usually you sleep late, so you miss your morning meditation, but one day you wake up early to do your morning meditation. Very well done, you know. I rejoice in my virtue that, you know, my practice is that important to me that I get up early. Okay? So... <laughs> I can see some people are resonating with examples. <laughs> yeah. But really rejoicing at our virtue, even if it's something small. You know, I, I gave a granola bar to, to somebody on the street who was hungry. That's good. Yeah. Or whatever virtuous thing it was. You know, I'm glad I rejoice in my own virtue. And we also rejoice in others' virtue. Okay. So this kind of rejoicing is an excellent antidote to jealousy. Yeah. So instead of always competing, who, who's the most virtuous? <laughs> or who gets the bigger paycheck? Or who's the most famous? Or who's the most good-looking? Or who's the most intelligent? Or, you know... Who grows the best bonsai trees? You know, who has the best butterfly collection? Whatever it is that where we get arrogant, yeah, to be able to look at others and say, I'm so glad that they're successful. Yeah, I'm glad that people are better than me. I'm glad that people are very virtuous. I'm glad that people have opportunities that I don't have. Yeah. And so if we can rejoice like this, believe me, it really transforms our mind and it takes away a lot of our bad moods. You know, Because a lot of our bad moods are just this grumbling over, you know, somebody else has it better than me and I got the raw end of the deal. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah, when we look, why are we unhappy? We're always grumbling, complaining. You know? They served the food on a buffet, and by the time I got there, all the string beans were gone. You know? Nobody cares about me. They ate all the string beans. I don't like string beans. I wouldn't have taken them anyway. But the fact is that they were selfish and didn't think that I might want them. Yeah? Then we get so unhappy. Don't we? Yeah. Then we compare ourselves to other people. So-and-so at work just got a new car. Yeah, I got a new car too, but theirs is nicer. Theirs is more expensive. I couldn't afford what they had. They get so much money. <laughs> I wonder, you know. And then we go up 
making stories about, well, I wonder what other kind of deals they're working in, based on no information at all, but just as a way to grumble. Hmm? Okay. So this one of rejoicing is completely the opposite. Yeah. I'm glad they have that opportunity. I'm glad they have that skill. I'm glad that they create so much virtue. I'm glad they don't fall asleep in meditation even though I do. You know, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, just rejoicing and letting ourselves be happy. And if we practice rejoicing, for sure we're going to be in better moods during the day. Because if we really practice rejoicing, there's no space for complaining. And complaining and grumbling puts us in a bad mood, don't you think? Yeah? I know for myself, when my mind just starts complaining and grumbling, you know, everything is bad then. Even the weather, you know, it's this gorgeous day, but, you know, it's too hot out. It was 88 today. It could, should have been 85. <laughs> yeah. And they have the windows open. They didn't even turn on the air con when it was 88. You know? And then we go on and on and on and on, you know? You know, I don't have to make too many examples. Yeah. Oh, my roommate snores. Uh, that's what you come to the Abbey. Oh, my roommate snores. Yeah. They don't snore, they're breathing. Do you want to stop them breathing? You can't tolerate the fact that they're breathing? That is painful to you, you know? Just make a little noise yourself, they'll roll over, and then stop snoring, and it'll be okay. Anyway, we put the snores in different robes. So maybe it's you that's snoring that woke yourself. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So, rejoicing. Very important practice. Then, the next one is often translated in different ways. Let's see how we have it here. Okay. So, oh, I didn't read the rejoicing verse. Okay. So the rejoicing verse says, I lift up my heart and rejoice in all merits of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and ten directions of solitary realizers, hearers still training and those beyond, and of all ordinary beings. So especially when you think of the merit of the holy beings, you know, then your mind can get really happy. Yeah, wow, there's all these holy beings doing these amazing virtuous activities to benefit others throughout the universe. This is fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So they say that when we rejoice at the virtues of somebody who's kind of equal to us, 
then we create as much virtue in rejoicing as they did by doing the action. If we rejoice in the virtues of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, people who are spiritually more realized than us, then we uh, create a fraction of their virtue. And if we rejoice at the virtuous actions of people who aren't as advanced as us, we create more virtue. So they say that rejoicing is the lazy person's way to create good karma. Because <laughs> all you have to do is sit there and have positive thoughts about everybody else and all the good things they're doing. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to move a muscle. Okay? But it makes your mind very happy and it creates a tremendous amount of merit. Okay, then the next one, okay, sometimes, this one, here they translated it as requesting, and this is requesting that the Dharma wheel be turned. In other words, that we, uh, the Buddhas and our teachers teach the Dharma. So the verse here is, you are the bright lights of worlds in ten directions who have attained the Buddha's omniscience to the stages of awakening. All of you who are my guides, please turn the supreme wheel of Dharma. Okay? So this is requesting teachings. Yeah? And it's very important for us to request teachings. Very important. Because it's through requesting teachings that we express our sincerity, our earnestness, our uh, dedication to the path. Okay? It's through requesting teachings. And actually, somebody is not supposed to teach unless they are requested three times. Yeah. So we have to put ourselves out there to make the requests. Yeah, this is really very important for our practice. Nowadays, you know, we often uh, take the teachings for granted. Yeah. And it's like, well, here there's teachings. There's teachings at the center Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Okay, I don't go today, I'll go tomorrow. Not very important anyway. Yeah. I don't go this week, I'll go some other week. Yeah. Oh, they're having a retreat. Yeah, it'd be good I go, but, you know, I really want to sleep in this week. I'm just exhausted. Yeah? And so we really start taking the Dharma for granted, thinking it's always going to be there, the teachers are always going to be there. You know, if you're going to a Dharma center that's across town, oh, I have to drive a half an hour to go there. It's too long to drive a half an hour. You know, I'll stay at home. Anyway, they stream them. So, you know, I can watch the teachings when they're streamed, sit in my nice, comfy, big chair, put my feet up, you know, have a beer. <laughs> yeah, the, the teacher doesn't see that I'm drinking. They don't know anything about what I'm doing. Put my feet up, have a beer, have some cookies, 
read the newspaper when they're talking about something that's not so interesting, like right now. <laughs> you know? And then when they say something funny, then putting down the newspaper and, and listening a little bit. Yeah, so we really come to take the teachings for granted. Yeah, and that's not a good mental state because if we have that attitude, then we miss out on the teachings. Yeah. And it's not like we're going to live forever, and it's not like our teachers are going to live forever. Yeah, so it's really important to take advantage of the teachings while we have the opportunity. You know, when I first started out, um, I met the Dharma in the U.S. So uh, there were no Dharma centers, you know, English-speaking centers. There were, you know, ethnic temples, but I didn't speak Japanese or Chinese or, you know, Thai or, or uh, Vietnamese or anything. So when I met the Dharma, there was really very little that I could go to in the States. So I had to go halfway around the world to Nepal, where my teachers had a monastery. So when people tell me that they can't drive a half an hour to the teachings, I don't have very much sympathy. <laughs> yeah? Because I had to pick up and go halfway around the world, yeah, and eat different food in a different climate and have visa problems. And do you know how much I suffered? <laughs> I walked 10 miles in the snow to get Dharma teachings. Well, not really, but you know. <laughs> yeah? But I've, I've really discovered through the years that when we have to put ourselves out and undergo a little bit of hardship to hear the Dharma, it helps our practice. Yeah. When everything is so easy for us that all we do is snap, snap, then it doesn't mean as much to us. Yeah. So, you know, I, I went halfway around the world to Nepal. I stayed in the monastery. I was a lay person at that time. And then, of course, the Nepali government kicked us all out. They didn't want people, foreigners, having their visas more than a certain number of months. So then I had to go into India. And uh, anyway, after some years, I wound up getting sent to Italy. And in Italy, I was put in charge of the spiritual program, but there was no teacher. Yeah. And I was there, you know, I was a baby nun. I had only been ordained maybe two years, you know. I was in charge of the spiritual program and coordinating all of these things. And I desperately wanted teachings, and there was not a resident teacher. Yeah. And I did this, <laughs> this verse, this one of the seven limbs, very strongly and very often because, you know, uh, I just, I needed the teaching so badly, and it was difficult, you know, it was very difficult to get them. Yeah. Okay. So, and so also when we, when we do that first, requesting teachings, it's, it's nice to visualize a very beautiful Dharma wheel, and then offer that 
to the merit field, to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Then the next um, one is supplication. This is number six. In some versions of the prayer, five and six are reversed. Yeah, so you just have to pay attention. So this one, supplication, is asking the Buddhas to remain and teach the Dharma and asking our teachers to have long life and to continue to teach us. So it says, with palms together, I earnestly request you who may actualize Parinirvana, please stay with us for eons numberless as atoms of the world, for the happiness and well-being of all wanderers in samsara. So we're requesting, you know, the Buddha, instead of going into parinirvana and deep meditation on the nature of reality forever, please continue to manifest in our world. Because if we don't have manifestations of the Buddha in our world, we're going to be in big trouble. Yeah? And so we sincerely make that request. And at the time we make that request, we, um, we uh, imagine a double door chain. Is there? There's no double door chain here. There's one on the other seat. It's two door chains. One is horizontal, one is vertical. Okay? That's a symbol of long life. So we, off we imagine offering that again to the merit field. And, you know, really sincerely in our, in our hearts asking them, to please, you know, stay around and manifest in our world and teach and guide us. And if you think, what would your life be like if you had not met the Dharma and had no access to teachers, no access to books, you know, if the Dharma wasn't present, in your life at all because there were no manifestations of it. Yeah? What would your life be like? Yeah. It's not like we're going to know the Dharma path ourselves and it's going to appear like magic in our mind. You know, we need to learn how to discriminate, you know, virtue from non-virtue. We need to hear teachings and have guidance. Yeah, so think a little bit of what your life would be like if there was no aspect of Dharma whatsoever available. Yeah, and there you were, wanting happiness, not wanting suffering. Nobody's there to teach you. You have no idea of a path. You're floundering around. I mean, horrible, really horrible. Yeah. Much, I think that kind of situation is much worse than like having kidney disease or cancer or anything like that. Yeah, much worse. And, you know, so when we think about that, then we really see the value and importance of the Dharma. And then when we do these, the request verse and the supplication verse, our heart is in it. We, we know why we're doing it and we really mean it. And then the, um, the seventh verse is the dedication. So this is uh, in this book. Whatever slight merit I may have created, 
by paying homage, offering, and acknowledging my faults, rejoicing and requesting that the Buddha stay and teach, I now dedicate all this for full awakening. Okay, so looking back on the previous six practices that we did, yeah, rejoicing in them and then dedicating the merit. Yeah, and we dedicate the merit to all sentient beings, not just for ourselves. Yeah, we really spread it far and wide. And in doing so, we, um, we change what was something that was small into something that is inexhaustible. Yeah? Because we're sharing it. It's also a practice of generosity. We're sharing our merit with all living beings, you know, so that they may attain full awakening through our being able to progress along the path. So when you look at the seven limbs, they often say that there's three main things. There's purification, there's um, creation of merit, and then there is multiplying. Okay? So prostrations, offering, rejoicing, uh, requesting, and supplication, those four are creating merit. Confession is doing purification. And the part of rejoicing, that is rejoicing at our own virtue, that is multiplying. Okay, because we're rejoicing at our own and others' virtue. And then the last one of dedication is multiplying and making inexhaustible. So we're dedicating our merit for the enlightenment of all beings. So that means that the merit doesn't exhaust before that. It's not like we're going to get some good result in samsara, that good karma is used up and finished. You know, when you dedicate for full awakening, then all the kind of good results in samsara are included along the way because we need like a good rebirth and we need a certain amount of wealth and so on in order to be able to practice. Okay. So that's the seven limb prayer. Any questions so far? and generate bodhicitta and do the four measurables and if there's a verse for special bodhicitta then you do that too and then you dissolve the refuge visualization all the figures dissolve into the Buddha and the Buddha dissolves into you and then after that you generate the merit field in the space in front and you do the seven limb prayer and mandala and so forth. Okay, yeah. okay. so we'll continue then. Okay, so then the, um, yeah. 
So then, uh, to continue on in the Gumchen Lamrim, it says the mandala offering comes next. Then request your desired goals that all forms of correct thinking, veneration for the masters and so on may arise in your mind and that external and internal obstacles may be appeased and so forth. With intense aspiration, be sure to request again and again. Okay, so after we do the, um, the seven limbs, then we do the mandala offering, which is also a practice of, of creating merit. Okay, so it's also a practice of creating merit. And here, mandala means our universe. And so we imagine our universe and offer it with, together with all the beautiful things in it to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the space in front of us. Okay, so the, the usual prayer that we, uh, the verses that we chant for the long, long mandala, then it describes all the different things in the universe that we're offering. And this is according to the ancient Indian cosmology. Okay, um, we usually do the short mandala tomorrow. You know, when we request teachings from Geshe-la, we'll be doing the short mandala. So we still visualize the same thing, but we don't do all the chanting of uh, mentioning all the things in the mandala. Uh, a friend of mine wrote a book, which I can't remember the name of, but he wrote uh, a different kind of mandala offering, one that is accords with like how we practice. Let Rob, me, Rob Pierce. Yeah, Rob Pierce wrote it. Hold on one second. Let me see it. I'm going to have it on the computer, and if so, I'll read it to you. Just let me see. It's really kind of cool if I can find it. So, uh, the idea is that we think of the universe and everything beautiful in it, and then without any sense of loss, without any sense of miserliness, we offer it to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And so we think of uh, things that are very beautiful, you can do it according to the, the old cosmology because the different things you offer have symbolism that it's nice to think about. Or you can just think of the things that you find very beautiful, but you make them even better and more beautiful and without any kind of faults and unlimited, you know, and you fill the whole sky with them. So if, you know, and it's very good to do if you're really craving for something. You know, instead of sitting there and just craving, I want this, I want this, I want this, you just put it all out there, you know. You're sitting there craving for a motorcycle. You want a new motorcycle, okay? Who would want that? I don't know, but you know, <laughs> somebody, I'm sure, because they sell a lot of motorcycles. So, so you make, you devise these incredible, beautiful, far-out motorcycles that never break, that are really shiny, that are the exact color you want, that, you know, run without having to pollute the universe and you don't have to pay for gas. You make them, you just make things beautiful and extravagant and, and offer it up, 
you know. Or maybe you're just sitting there craving the kind of music you like, you know. You're just desperate to go and hear some classical music, or all you want to do is go to a jazz club, or all you want to go do is go to the disco. Well, you imagine the whole thing, the whole universe, like that, you know, and then you offer it again and again and again. I forget the name of this book. Anybody remember? Yeah, it's a book he wrote about Nundro. What's his name? Huh? In any case, maybe somebody can find it the next week. I'll, I'll read it. Yeah. Um, but the idea is, you know, just the universe, offer it again and again. If you're really attached to somebody, put them in the, uni- in the mandala offering. Offer them to the Buddha. Let the Buddha take care of them. Aren't they in better shape under the care of the Buddha's benevolence and compassion? than under the care of your grasping, complaining mind. You know, offer them to the Buddha. And another uh, another visualization that goes with the mandala offering that I think is incredibly helpful, and I really recommend people do it, do it is one in which you um, imagine the different parts of your body becoming all the elements in the mandala. Yeah. And by doing this, you, you repeatedly offer your body again and again and again, and it really works to lessen your attachment to your body. Okay, so your torso is Mount Meru, your hands and your feet are the four continents, your upper and lower arms, your thigh and your calf are the eight subcontinents. Okay, the, your eyes are the sun and moon, your, the ears are the banner and the parasol, um, your intestines are the rings of mountains, your blood and your lymph become, you know, the, the seas. So you just take everything in your body that is usually, if we dissect our body, is rather disgusting looking, you know? And you transform it into this beautiful universe that's very pure and offer it to the Buddha. It's really quite wonderful. And and I think will help a lot when it comes time to die, you know, to help us overcome uh, clinging to this body. And then in uh, the text it mentions reciting a request uh, verse at that time. So I want to read that request. Uh, request verse to you. Okay? So, this is when you offer the mandala, you know, to the way to really request. It says, Please inspire all mother sentient beings and me so that we may quickly stop all flawed states of mind from not respecting the spiritual mentors up to grasping signs of true existence. Please inspire us to generate all flawless states of mind from respecting our spiritual mentors up to knowing the reality of selflessness. Please inspire us to quell all outer and inner obstacles. So basically what we're doing is requesting for all the realizations of the gradual path, beginning with how to rely on a spiritual mentor, up to realizing with direct perception the nature of reality and to be free of all 
wrong conceptions that are the opposites, you know, from the very first understanding up to the very last realization. And then to quell all the inner and outer obstacles. Inner obstacles, well, outer obstacles first. Outer obstacles are, uh, you know, your car breaks down so you can't get to the retreat. Um, you know, something in the outer world prevents you, yeah. Inner obstacles is things that have to do with your own body and mind. So you get sick, you're in a bad mood, your mind starts making up every reason in the universe why not to go to the teachings. Yeah, so those are inner obstacles. So really uh, making a strong request for the the inspiration of the holy beings so that we can be free of all those different kinds of obstacles. Okay. Yeah. Okay, here it is. Okay, so uh, if if you have the blue prayer book, you uh, the traditional one is on page. Where is it? Fifteen, I think. No, the long ones on on. Yeah, okay. So that's the traditional one. And then here, the way Rob wrote it, here is the basic open ground, the ground of my being. Here is the circle of my totality. This is the center of my totality, the axis mundi. This is the environment in which I live. These are the oceans and mountains, the lakes and rivers, the rocks and trees. These are beautiful places I treasure, the plants and flowers, the wildlife. These are the cities and towns that I live and work in, their value and downfall. These are the people I live amongst and work amongst. They are my friends and acquaintances, those I depend on. These, uh, the people, these are the people I struggle with, the object of my aversion and confusion. This is my work, my livelihood, my action in the world. This is my home, my garden, and my possessions. The things I treasure and value and the objects of attachment. These are my loved ones, my family, my private life. This is the body I inhabit in this life. These are my sense pleasures, the food, the music, the beauty I value. These are my dreams, my ambitions, my plans. These are all those things I wish for in my life that may or may not come to pass. These are my qualities, my talents and gifts. This is the knowledge and learning I have gained in my life. These are my habits, my emotional problems, my wounds. This is the core of my identity that I hold on to as real. This is the spiritual journey I am on. These are the qualities and realizations I aspire to. These are the obstacles and difficulties of the path. These are the essential ingredients of my enlightenment. This is the treasure of my Buddha potential. This symbolizes my enlightenment, my victory over the confusion and suffering 
of myself and all sentient beings. I offer this mandala of my essential totality and surrender my being to all the Buddhas for the welfare of all sentient beings. Please bestow your, your blessings. And then the short mandala. All these objects of my mind, three poisons, coveted, friend, foe, stranger, body, wealth, worldly pleasures, without a feeling of loss, I surrender. Receive them, please, and free me and all beings from their bondage. Nice, isn't it? Yeah. It it makes it really personal. So the traditional ones, you know, when you're offering, um, okay, the precious wheel, jewel, queen, minister, elephant, horse, general, and the great treasure base, these kinds of things, they all have different symbolisms, you know. So it's nice to offer those and think of the symbolisms. But this kind of thing makes it really, isn't it? It's like, I'm giving up everything, you know, and I'm stopping hanging on to, you know, this is me, I, my, and mine, that I'm going to hang on to and protect, because otherwise somebody's going to take it away from me, or prevent me from having it, or something like that. So it's just a completely full, open, big mind of giving. We're giving the whole universe. Okay. So, any other questions? Yeah. yeah I was thinking going back to what you were saying earlier, some of the prayer about the confession part, you know, how, you know, how difficult it must be sometimes for people to do that confessing part when they look at some of the devastating things they've done in the past and to do that without having a framework I was thinking like the one step program there's a very clear progression of when you actually do that part and I was thinking about you know you work a lot with prisoners and that and how you encounter their approach I guess they're building a framework within which to a spiritual framework within which to hold how they look at the fact that they've murdered raped or Mm-hmm. If you could comment on the yeah. Okay, my work with prisoners in terms of the confession. I find that usually by the time somebody thinks to write to a Buddhist nun, that they've given some serious consideration to what landed them in prison. Yeah. Now, some people who work with inmates never ask. They say, it's none of my business, and I don't want to see that person through the lens of what their crime was. I always ask, yeah, because uh, I think it's really important for people to be able to say up front what they did. And then sometimes I come back with questions, you know, what were you thinking, and so on and so forth. And sometimes if I sense that somebody is not really owning up to the full responsibility of what they did, I'll hammer on them. Yeah, because inmate, I mean, 
these guys have, have good BS detectors. Yeah. And so you have to be completely, you know, straightforward. And you don't need to, to dance and say pretty things to them. You know? Uh, people outside of prison, you can't, you know, you have to kind of dance and walk down eggshells and take a few years to kind of get around to maybe they'll admit that they did something that wasn't so nice. You know, because if you bring it on too soon, they'll run away in horror and blame it all on you. But, but inmates, you know, they've kind of been through the, through the mill. And you can say things pretty straightforward to them. At least I do. I mean, and I think they know that it's coming from a place of kindness. Oh yeah, in a group, in a group situation, you wouldn't do that. Yeah. 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 Although some of the guys write me, and uh, I mean, I write to a number of people who are sexual offenders. Somehow, that's just people who write to me, and you know, one of them tells me that you know, in his groups, his sexual offenders group, they really encourage them to completely open up. And he's decided to do that, and so everybody knows like what he's done. But it's true what you're saying in other kinds of groups, in within the prison, it's not always safe for them to know what what to to tell other people what they've done. And it really isn't necessarily appropriate to talk about it inside in the group without asking everybody's permission. But when you're corresponding, then it's it's a very different ballgame. Hmm? I think it's healthy for them to be able to talk to them. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last week someone asked if you can confess uh, in your own mind to the Buddha instead of to a human being. Yes, sure, of course, why not? Yeah. Um, so it, it, there isn't anything that you have to go tell a human being. It, because what we're talking about here, I mean the seven in prayer, it's the visualized Buddha and Bodhisattvas in front of you. Yeah, so you're confessing right there to them. But think of them as living beings. Yeah. Don't just think, well, I'm saying these things, but nobody's really hearing them because it's just a visualization. Yeah. Really kind of in your mind, you know, bring it out. And I think, you know, I think if we can relate to the Buddha as the person who is our best friend, who we can trust, who's never going to turn against us and criticize us. Yeah, I think it's very important to see the Buddha in that way. Yeah. Sometimes we take the Judaic Christian image of, you know, God, maybe sometimes a wrathful God, and we project that onto the Buddha. And we think, oh my goodness, if I do confession to the Buddha, Buddha's going to go, ah, I smite thee, you know, and, you know, and give you pestilence and fire and da 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 No, Buddha's not going to do anything like that. Yeah, I mean, Buddha's seen it all. There's nothing we can say that's going to shock the Buddha. Yeah, 
So in our meditation, we can just relate to the Buddha as our best friend, who we can say absolutely everything to, and who will understand, you know, and have compassion for us. So we don't need to worry about being judged. We don't need to keep secrets because we're ashamed or, you know, fearful. We can just lay it all out. And it's, it's really very helpful, you know, to think of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas really like, you know, even better than your best friend in terms of what you can reveal. I mean, you, you look at the Buddha, you look at Chenrezig, do they look like they're going to, you know, get furious at you? You know? Uh, and Buddhas don't send anybody to hell either. Yeah, because Buddhas aren't controllers or creators or managers of the universe. They're simply describing the path that they themselves practiced. Yeah. And they have no ego benefit from helping us at all. So we can just trust their compassion. So, you know, when we take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, this is how we should think. Mm -hmm. I think the point about taking the Dharma for granted is, is really very scary because it's very, it can happen anytime to anyone. And, and like when you meet the Dharma, and then, you know, when the conditions dry up, you know, your teacher could be speaking the same language, but you don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's very scary when you think of losing all the conditions for Dharma practice. Very scary. Yeah. And then you really see why it's important to to request teachings, to request that the Buddhas manifest. Yeah. And to not just request and then not go. <laughs> yeah. But to request and put out our energy to go and to help and volunteer to make so that the teachings are made available to more and more and more people. And the hardship is also good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes even a lot, if you can transform your hardship and really, you know, learn from it, then a lot of hardship becomes a little bit of hardship. Okay. Okay. Someone asked um, about how is it that we harm the Buddhas because when we do our confession prayer... Oh, so how is it we harm the Buddhas? If people make offerings on the altar and we just, you know, I see this, yeah? You come into the temple, you make offerings, you bring all this delicious food, you put it on the altar, and then exactly after lunchtime... That's the time you need to take the offerings off the altar. So you take the offerings off the altar and you eat them yourself, you know, and then you never really had offered them. Yeah, you were just putting them there for a couple of hours until you could eat them. Okay, I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know, you get my idea. So actually stealing from the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, taking the offerings, if there's a donation box, you know, where, where people have made monetary offerings or people put jewelry on the statues, 
you steal those. Taking the property of the Sangha community, you know, is very heavy negative karma. Um, deliberately, like, damaging Dharma books, criticizing the Buddha Dharma Sangha, all these kinds of things. Selling the, the holy objects to make money. Yeah. Okay. So let's offer the mandala and dedicate. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. If I completely all outer and inner hindrances, grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable, and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Guruana Mandala Kamiriyatayami. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful terms and gaps of mercy. May you stay until samsara ends. May the of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey. 